1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions uh, podcast here on the New Books Network. Um, today we have uh, a fascinating uh, new 2021 OUP publication called "Print and the Urdu Public: Muslims, Newspapers, and Urban Life in Colonial India." We'll be speaking with the book with the book's author, of course, uh, Dr. Megan Eaton Rob. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
0: Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: So, um, is your subtitle a misnomer? What's the book about?
0: <laughs> the subtitle is not <laughs> a misnomer. Um, I uh, The book is about a... Um, I mean, there are two ways of thinking about what the book is about. One is to think about the case study that it focuses on, uh, a... Fascinating Urdu language newspaper named Medina that was founded in 1912 by a remarkable um, man uh, who was a proprietor of the newspaper, Maulana Majid Hassan. And another way to think about the book, um, aside from this newspaper that was an important anti-colonial voice, but also an important voice that uh, contested in really productive ways national party politics. Another way to think about the book is to Uh, think about its theoretical interventions. It's interested in thinking about why it's important to consider alignments with space and time when we're defining public spheres. Uh, So in the academic context, um, as as you know, there's this vibrant conversation about what constitutes a a public. Uh, And my book argues that it's important to acknowledge that what constitutes a public can vary pretty dramatically according to the alignments that a public makes with certain specific geographic places. Um, and in this book, what really comes to the fore is the relationship between the public that this newspaper is engaged with and the qasba, or the Islamic small town uh, in colonial India. Uh, and another way of think, the the other kind of theoretical approach to the book is that we should take lithographed newspapers pretty seriously as sources that tell us something about everyday Muslim life and piety. Um, And so I'm tackling these two theoretical tasks by, you know, localizing the public and uh, taking lithographed newspapers seriously by focusing on this fascinating case study of a previously understudied newspaper called Medina. And it was published in a qasbah called Bijnur.
1: Yes, you've touched on a, a number of the aspects of the book there uh, uh, very eloquently. Um, let's um, let's let's focus a little bit on the newspaper itself. Tell us a mm. bit about that newspaper.
0: Oh, I gladly, happily, I'm excited to, to, to I like to start this story every time. So, in 1912, in a small kasbah, Bijanor in British India. Uh, a man named Majid Hassan. He would later uh, earn the title of Molana not through education but through the popular acclaim of the people who read and appreciated his newspaper. In 1912, Majid Hassan uh sold actually his wife's jewelry with her permission for the uh to uh, receive the money to found the newspaper medina so it certainly was a financial risk um when he founded uh the paper and the newspaper pledged to be <clears throat> the friend of the mulk so And the life of the Qom, so the friend of you know the nation, and the life of uh, the Qom here was referring to the Muslim community specifically. Um, And Medina went on to become one of the most successful newspapers of any language circulating in North India and the Punjab. So in 1922 specifically, it had the largest circulation of any paper um, that was circulating in the northern half of the subcontinent, at least. And what's fascinating is that the newspaper's success was not something that most observers would have been able to predict because of its origins um, in a small town. But Majid Hassan was able to leverage really success, really influential and um, expert networks of journalists, calligraphers, as well as printing specialists in order to gain a strong reputation for his newspaper. And what was also really interesting about this newspaper, it was published in Urdu and it was published using lithographic technology, is that it began to... And really, from the start, emphasized a connection between the Urdu language community and a and Islam. And so, as as you as you know, I mean, the connection between Urdu and Islam is very recent, really. Uh, it, it, and it's something that needs to be historicized. But what I find really uh, interesting and exciting about this case study is, I think that these newspapers that connected Urdu and Islam are part of the puzzle of how. Urdu and Islam became so closely connected in uh, the public imagination in the first half of the 20th century. So M- Medina certainly has many tales of anti-colonial resistance, fighting against censorship, trying to evade censorship. And, and we can talk about more of those specific anecdotes you know, it, during this conversation, if you like. Um, and it ultimately... Although initially it was both committed to the Muslim League and the Congress when those weren't mutually exclusive, ultimately it became much more supportive of the Congress Party um, and was very critical of the Muslim League and its calls for Pakistan. So in that sense, it's also an important aspect of Indian history of a very influential um, Urdu publication that connected Islam, um, with Congress politics, and with um, the founding of an independent India.
1: In addition to the newspaper itself, what else do you look at? What other um, sources are you examining in your book?
0: Hmm. That's a, yes, great question. So the newspaper, of course, is the core of my archival information. I was able to find a full archival, a full collection of the newspaper at the University I'm sorry, uh, Royal Holloway, University of London. Um, But aside from that, I look at archival documents um, from the colonial sources. Uh, So one of the side effects of the stringent censorship and surveillance is that there uh, that existed under British colonial rule is that there are um, a number of granular sources that offer information about circulation numbers, about the names and financial status of the proprietors and editors of some of these newspapers. And so uh, they were, these documents were often referred to as the statements of the vernacular, quote unquote, vernacular newspapers. Um, And I I benefited from making reference to those. But I also found, um, I also searched in uh, diary entries and uh, correspondence where I could find it, as well as uh, Tazgeras or uh, Tazgeras of local bijanoris. So there are some Tazgeras recording influential um, locals and what their contributions to the local community were. I um, uh, certainly benefited from reference to those as well. and um, And I also did an aspect of... I I benefited from several informational interviews with the descendants of Molana Majid Hassan, who still live in the Haveli where Medina newspaper was printed and still remember when um, Medina was uh, under production because it it continued being produced until a few years after Molana Majid Hassan's death in the early uh, 1970s. And um, I also trained as a novice lithographer to get a sense of how the newspaper was actually being produced at um, on a day to day level. And so there was also an aspect of hands on um, hands on ethnographic work, if you will, or maybe auto ethnographic work to get a sense of empathy and uh, hands on experience to think about what are the questions I should be asking about how an Urdu newspaper really came into being. In the early 20th century,
1: what would you say is the core um, takeaway, the core conclusion, in terms of the data? We'll, we'll also talk about the theory. What would you, hmm. what would you say is the core conclusion about what you're <clears throat> studying?
0: Well, I think that for um, an academic monograph, there are the the conclusion is fairly theoretical, right? That um, <clears throat> that the public, that Urdu newspapers were. Uh, were contributing to the creation of should be considered with reference to its grounding in the qasba as a uh, as an authentic um, space uh, for its readers, and also uh, it should be understood with reference to a Muslim past. So, the fact that the past was regularly and intricately interwoven into contemporary news stories and the um the accounts of historical figures from that were directly linked to Islam stood alongside contemporary news accounts uh reaffirming this sense of an intertwining of the the past and present in a way that really as many scholars have touched on in, in previous works as well, linear time doesn't really help us understand the productive relationship between past and present that helped imagine other futures. So I think that this concept of, um, you know, space and time as an important aspect of the public sphere that's been underappreciated in the past is that core uh, takeaway that I wanted to explore, um, but also. The importance of newspapers for historians, not just as sources that can help us corroborate when certain things happened or didn't happen, which is how historians have tended to use newspapers in the past as kind of more or less throwaway items um, that are useful as kind of backing up, um, you know, evidence of certain occurrences, but otherwise Um, not particularly interesting as artifact in itself. I'm hoping what my book does is um, builds on the really exciting work that's being done on considering newspapers as items of historical merit in their own right. And this is one reason why I spent so much time trying to learn how the newspapers were produced. They deserve to be uh, considered as historical sources with a you know with a material culture as well you know tied to communities for instance bolana majid hassan's uh press was a was a community the editors and the editors of the newspaper lived in the home when the newspaper was being published and uh there were in the the kind of complex itself there were separate apartments for the families of the editors to live in you know s- some relative privacy Um, and this indicates it's not only a reflection of the fact that the newspapers were built upon very strong, like kinship and relational networks, but also it hints at the fact that the newspaper is only one part of this really vibrant conversation, right? That's happening in the community of newspapers, publishers, newspaper publishers and editors. Uh, so just just to kind of in in brief you know the first the first big thing is okay we need to think about space and time as important aspects of understanding how publics were functioning and this is um and then the second thing is to think about newspapers as something we take seriously um not just as things that help us pin down dates for events
1: fascinating now regarding the first overarching core takeaway um I think it's worthwhile to, to probe a little more deeply about what you have to say about this idea of the public as uh, timescape.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so I think that um, timescape is a term that I certainly did not <laughs> invent, but what I think it does help us do is think about um, pushing upon some of the existing and very well established concepts of what constitutes a public sphere so in um <clears throat> so if we look at how the understanding of the public developed over time i were very influenced by the um by the ideas of jürgen habermas who established a uh, thought about um the uh public as something that stood in opposition to uh, the government as a kind of corrective or a separate space um, for the debating and hashing out of ideas, right? And understandings of the public sphere have also been very strongly influenced by Benedict Anderson's concept of imagined community, which uh, basically established the conditions for the rise of nationalism. So both of those lineages have been pretty important when thinking about how we understand uh, we understand publics. And Habermas is depending on a notion of individual subjectivity when he's talking about the the members of the public that are involved in that conversation. And critics of Certainly pointed out in the past that these types of individual um, kind of enlightenment um, inflected subjectivities aren't necessarily going to apply in the same way uh, when we're thinking about uh, different South Asian contexts. And Benedict Anderson, um, even though he's talking about the founding of the nation, um, rather than explicitly about publics because he depends so heavily on print capitalism as one of the conditions for the rise of of, of the the nation itself, um, he thinks about this notion of imagined community as becoming modular. So it develops in like this, in the South American colonial context and gets uh, basically taken out Implanted into the European context, and at some point it gets exported to the South Asian subcontinent. And the implication is that print capitalism is interacting with societies in more or less the same way everywhere that print capital uh, extends or penetrates And for me, this never really rung true when I was looking at how print capitalism developed in the South Asian subcontinent. So among those writing uh, and publishing in Urdu or in Persian, the printing press as developed in Europe was very unattractive uh, because it wasn't able to preserve the beauty or even sometimes the legibility of the written word. Once lithography, so this this form of printing that used a, a lithographic stone that was capable of soaking an in ink in kind of positive areas and repelling ink in negative areas to print um, more nuanced images. Once this printing technology arrived, it uh, print, uh, mass printing really took off among those writing in the Urdu and Persian script. That only happened after 1800. And so instead, although previous research into newspapers has assumed that newspapers that emerged in South Asia were building off of Western models only, my research really uncovered a a different lineage of influences. Um, Instead, I think that newspapers were building off of Akhbarat, so Persian newsletters and correspondence that was uh, that was circulated among both kinship networks as well as professional networks um, between ghazbaz and larger urban spaces, and also um, building on top of very vibrant and rich correspondence networks. And I think that by un- by unearthing the influence of these types of um literary or genre influences instead of Western newspapers, what it points to is really distinctive history of print capitalism in South Asia that um, developed quite independently from the modular forms that Anderson laid out. Okay, so all of this is to say that the timescape, when um, what I think it does very well, is it thinks about the aspects of the public that are not given as much attention in an Andersonian framework or a Habermasian framework. It thinks about how time can have a different relationship to how public thinks about itself in the South Asian context. And it also says that we should pay really close attention to how public conversations relate themselves to certain spaces as sources of authenticity. Um, and so Medina very, very specifically grounded its authenticity in the Qasbah at some point um in response to the publication of a very controversial literary work on Gaudi, it actually posted a couplet um, that translates as, you know, no calamity can reach the seclusion of solitude. And uh, what its reference what the reference there was that in the Qasba, kind of isolated from the westernized city, The publishers and writers in Medina were in some ways protected from the danger, in many ways, protected from the dangers of Westernization. And that created an authentic voice that really spoke to many of its readers.
1: What subfields does your book impact or otherwise put? Uh, Who might be interested in this book?
0: I think that it's one of those books that sits at the intersection of multiple fields, which is both a good thing and, and also why, a challenge. <laughs> that's why I
1: asked the question.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I was trained as a historian um, <clears throat> and also, uh, in, in, with, also inflected with area studies. And I am currently in a religious studies department. So I think that this book has something, certainly something to say to historians Certainly something useful to add to area studies uh, conversations, South Asian studies. I think it uh, and hope that will be useful for religious studies, scholars, Islamic studies scholars, for those interested in social and cultural historical aspects of uh, Islamic studies. And. Um, <clears throat> uh those are the those are the major disciplinary in, uh, interlocutors uh, that I envision, although I have had really productive conversations with literary studies scholars as well. You know, those thinking about Urdu um, <clears throat> from the literary perspective. And this is partly because the newspaper itself in some ways is uh, Sometimes it can be complicated to see it as a form of literature because it was a very um, (laughs) lowbrow form of writing at times. Um, But I think that it certainly merits being treated as a uh, collection of literary genres as well.
1: Listen, as someone who studies the Puranas, I'm well aware of genres of texts that are considered lowbrow compared to (laughs) other (laughs) texts. I'm also well aware of their value for tuning us to, uh, to, to lived experiences. Um, yeah. Say a word about the structure of the book. Walk us through the book.
0: Great. Uh, well, so I my introduction really lays out the, the, theor- the theoretical interventions that I've talked a lot about so far today. The first chapter, um, it's called Putting the Public House of Medina on the Muslim Map. And it really gives a a close, fine-grained account of how the newspaper itself developed, its lineage of initial editors that helped establish its reputation, also influential calligraphers who were writing for or helping produce the newspaper that helped give Medina the reputation for beautiful um, production value. Uh, And it kind of lays the groundwork for how this band of individuals with a very... relatively rapid rotation in its cast of characters ended up gaining, um, garnering a great deal of influence. And in the case of Majid Hassan, a great deal of personal political influence in the Congress party uh, towards, uh, as things drew closer and closer to independence. The second chapter, uh, it's called Back to the Future Qasbah, and it talks about Uh, it it pays close attention to the relationship of time in the newspaper. So here is where I do some close reading about conversations around time, the setting um, alongside of historical figures uh, next to uh, contemporary newspaper accounts to demonstrate the ways that on a daily basis, the newspaper was certainly interwoven into the lives of its readers, but also it took its commitment to keeping the past alive in the present and as part of the imagined future, um, it, it kept that emphasis um, alive through its weekly publication. The third chapter is on Urdu lithography, so it is the first account of how an Urdu uh, lithographic newspaper would come into being um, on a, a at a at a pretty granular level. So the layout of the editorial office. Um, how the Haveli itself was set up, the printing um, processes that were being used and how it was shipped. And I see this as a very practical contribution, but also very important in thinking about how, you know, a technology that by itself, of course, isn't religious, you know, in any essential way, how it came to be connected with Islam In this case, because of the lithographic technology's ability to reproduce this beautiful script um, that was being, and I talk a little bit about there's how an elision between Urdu, Persian, and Arabic kind of begins to emerge through the ways that um, visuals are employed in the newspaper. Sorry, then the fourth uh, chapter is called Viewing the Map of Europe Through the Lens of Islam. And this gets more into a kind of discursive analysis of how the newspaper, um, thought about itself um, and was hashing out aspects of social, cultural, political, and religious identity through looking at and critiquing um, your aspects of European civilization. And then I conclude the book by looking at a series of really fascinating case studies. called It's called Provincializing Policies Through the Urdu Public. And what it does is it says, okay, in as the newspaper, once the newspaper had developed its reputation, once it had built all of this social capital, how ultimately was it used? And so, one of the key case studies that I explore is the 1937 by election in Bijnor and Medina's very influential role in, uh, in that drama.
1: Fascinating. Um, was there anything else about the book that you wanted to mention?
0: Well, I think that we've, uh, I mean, I can, I think that the fascinating thing about the paper is in individual kind of anecdotes and stories (laughs) that emerge about the newspaper over time. But overall, I think we have a good general grasp of it. I don't want to anticipate any other questions (laughs) that you might have.
1: No, no, it's really, it's a scenic route, right? You can feel free to share any of the anecdotes you'd like. Um, one thing that I often ask, um, is um sometimes out of my own sheer curiosity i usually find out from your preface but the the audience may not know yet how did you get into this why why are you interested in this how did you end up researching this stuff
0: yes uh thank you for that question well um you know it's not always easy to explain (laughs) i think that um i mean i had a number of very close friends um with South Asian heritage from a very young age. Um, And so I certainly think that um, I was exposed to aspects of South Asian culture um, from uh, from when I was very young. My grandmother's second husband was uh, Pakistani and she had done a great deal of traveling in South Asia. Uh, She had lived in Bahrain for a number of years teaching at an international school there. And when I turned uh, 18, my grandmother took me to India for a trip, just the two of us. And it ended up being a really influential, really exciting and really impactful trip that came at a really influential time in my life. And so I was lucky enough to go to a university, um, Indiana University, that taught a range of languages, including Hindi. And so I actually got into my academic study of South Asia through a fascination with language, specifically Hindi. And so I went to Jaipur uh, to study Hindi with the um, AIS, American Institute of India Studies. And <clears throat> once I became a master's degree student at Oxford in South Asian studies, I was encouraged to engage with Persian and Urdu as languages as well. And so that led me to Lucknow uh, to study Urdu. And um I just benefited from extremely generous mentors and friends who are willing to invest in me as someone who was not born and raised in South Asia, um, but were, were willing to uh, guide me and give me the type of support that I needed to gain fluency in, um, in my research languages uh, and I think that the interest has just continued and consolidated and grown until it's a very important and a really essential part of my life. This is how this is how I explain it. It's not really a, a, a linear story. I would say there's no one specific reason. But this project, I think um, I became fascinated by when I ran across the archive of the newspaper itself and really not many people had looked at it. There was this Treasure trove of information that was that 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 was you know fairly neglected <laughs> um, up until the time when my supervisor Francis Robinson pointed me in in the direction of it, and once I started reading the newspaper, I loved the experience of being immersed in its moral universe, if that makes sense. So reading day after day, seeing how conversations developed, getting a sense of, you know, how news items were interacting with each other. Um, That polyphonic genre of the newspaper is just inherently really fascinating uh, to me. And as someone who didn't grow up in South Asia, I found the conversations I had with the older men that grew up reading Medina and um, alongside the experience of reading the newspaper as such a treasured aspect of uh, becoming more knowledgeable and more aware about the history of a subcontinent that I had come to love very deeply. So that that's my best explanation, um, but I'm sure it will change the next time someone asks me. <laughs>
1: Well, you never step in the same river twice, right? Um, no. And and you know whether it's newspapers or lives or Puranas, or it's never a linear story. It's always a story within a story within a story. Mm.
0: Um,
1: uh, Indeed, that's always a scenic route. This is my philosophy. <laughs> um, you know the sense I get, uh, uh, whether this is inside or projection, who knows? You'll you'll probably let me know. But the sense I get is that although you're reading a newspaper, you're reading sort of a, a nonfiction, right? You're reading some kind of journalism. Mm-hmm nevertheless in in entering the world of that newspaper it's not dissimilar from entering a narrative world where you pick up an ethos you pick up a worldview you pick up a set yes. of values you pick yes. up a flavor right there's a yes
0: exactly yes no exactly and I, I think I use that phrase moral universe because this is what my supervisor really, he used that phrase he said you know you want to read the newspaper to try to get a sense of its moral universe um but really that was a way of referring to that flavor you know how how is the and, and sometimes it's a little bit ineffable of course you can deconstruct it and say okay these these um These stories side by side are certainly playing a role here. But um, once I came to the University of Pennsylvania, I was benefiting from a department that spent a lot of time thinking about material culture. And this is really what gave me the nudge to think more seriously about lithography. And I realized that was the missing ingredient in my analysis. The flavor was inflected by this beauty of the script, um, by the kind of the images and by like the the material production of the paper. And once I began to consider that, really a lot of pieces started to fall into place, that there was a separate, there was a way that the, you know, Nostalik was inflecting the content, even when the content was, you know, fairly bland and pretty straightforward. Um, <clears throat> you know, the inclusion of, you know, diacritics um, that were usually preserved for the Quran in the title of Medina that wasn't actually in Arabic, was giving it a kind of halo um, that would implicitly reinforce this connection between an Urdu newspaper and the holy city of Medina.
1: No, it's beautiful. Uh, well, you probably, you may or may not know, but I study narrative primarily. Yes, and yes, so, I am so, aware. Yeah. So the the um, this is dual mode, you know. It's the analytical scholarly brain that needs to actually present the research and, and sift through the thoughts and, and relate it to theory and all that. But it's, it's the instinctive storytelling brain that you need to first taste that rasa.
0: Yeah, rasa is such a good, and you said the word rasa, and that makes so much, that, that is exactly the right word, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. There is an intuitive aspect of, of the work, and this is why I think that, you know, I'm hoping my book will speak to literary scholars as well, right? Because there is an aspect of this work that's very, um, that's very coherent, with uh, you know the aims of literary scholars. My undergraduate degree was actually in English literature. And so I have a you know a, a rudimentary literary background um, that I'm sure comes to the fore sometimes when I'm thinking about how these genres in the paper are working together. Uh,
1: that's interesting. I started off my academic moment well, like my studies. I started off as an English major. Excellent. English. Yeah. English, history, uh, philosophy, totally artsy artsy guy, obviously. Uh, right. Then went away and worked for a while, came back, and I discovered I could do all that in religious studies through Sanskrit narrative. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it, the beautiful thing about South Asian um, academic disciplines is there's so much rich interrelationship between disciplines there there's there's a lot of it's really generative i think the way that south asia area studies is very capacious and can intersect with a lot of different uh, apparently very siloed disciplines well
1: there, there's a highly scientific way i can corroborate that and it's as follows i do this podcast which really is one quote unquote channel on the new books network and there are about a hundred such channels they're dedicated to various subjects like Russian studies, you know, uh, philosophy. So I can tell by the number of times one of my podcasts are cross-posted to not one, two, but three different channels. It's like I'll do a podcast in uh, for you know what I do obviously Indian religions and it'll be cross posted to 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 to, uh, to to folklore studies you know to history in this case probably to Islamic studies etc 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 so that's a highly yes. scientific <laughs> way of ga- engaging <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes and it can have you know it has it's I think it's wonderful in terms of how to work in a field that is so capacious is so exciting but then it can also mean that it's sometimes complicated to uh, to kind of get the work out there, right? <laughs> because it's so easy for an interdisciplinary work to kind of fall between the cracks of specific disciplines. Uh, so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about the book in in more public ways, right? To really encourage and, and hope that people, at least a few people, might find the work interesting and useful.
1: Well, without question, I mean the, the 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 mission of New Books Network probably aligns very much with my own personal philosophy. It's just um, public outreach, public education, like sharing mm-hmm. what we've come up with, letting people know these books exist. Right? Yes. Folks can, folks can even have, um, you know, uh, even uh, I've heard back from profs who send students to these podcasts for certain wow. research projects. Um, they may listen to them because they may be remotely related to their field or not. And so mm. I really, um, I, I, I myself am uh, a little um, stymied and mystified at the, the ways in which the podcast is currently harnessed. And it started off as this kind of thing I did into a black box and it still is. And it's just, you know, I had a guest on a uh, timeless time of podcast land. I have no idea when two months ago, two years ago, who knows, probably closer to two months ago. But uh, Leo Como. Um, she was doing um, material culture in, in South Asia. She said this fascinating thing after, uh, you know, as you well know, before and after the, the recording, we'll, we'll chat for a couple of minutes. And she made a comment about the podcast being this um, 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 living sort of, I can't remember the word she used, but the sense that I got was that it's an archive, it's a conversational archive. And Mm -hmm. what was strange for me is that in reading your book and seeing how you're looking back on the culture of the newspaper, it Mm -hmm. actually illumined for me what she was referring to about the culture that's being built around this podcast, but I'm too in it to see it.
0: I I loved that comment because uh, I think that in, uh, you know, this podcast, we think that we're just talking about the books Right. We think that we're just here to talk about the, you know, the content that's underlying the podcast. But what's happening is we're contributing to and building up a culture of, you know, the academic podcast as well. And not just an academic podcast, a public podcast We're we're trying to expand out of these smaller boxes of academic monographs to really have much wider and even more meaningful conversations with a much wider audience, and I think that's very similar to what the newspapers um, that I was studying were trying to do—is thinking about how to have really productive conversations across boundaries. Um, but also, what it reminds me of is—I don't—I not i don't know if um, you caught this earlier, but I'm pretty sure you know. As we keep talking, we're going to realize that we know about you know two or three dozen of the same people and it will reveal the kind of smallness of the academic um, world, even though we're all very far flung uh, geographically. Um, and so, yes, the, you know, the space of, um, you know, where we are, are sitting right now. So right now I'm in Calgary. <laughs> That's an important space. But also there is this imagined space of the network and conversation we're involved in. I loved that. I loved that reflection. <sighs>
1: Wait, I'm a little slow on the uptake. You're at the University of Pennsylvania, are you not?
0: I am. Yes, yes, yes. But, but you're um, in but you're a, Calgary? I am in Calgary. So I, this semester, I am a Fulbright Chair in South Asian Islam at the University of Calgary. And so I have been... Um, lucky enough to be able to enjoy um, right now the Canadian summer, the Canadian winter was a little bit more difficult, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I've been here since early March.
1: Listen, I've been in Toronto my whole life, um, and, and so I'm used to Torontonian winters, and Calgary's winter was quite difficult for me, um, even oh, no. being you know in Canada. I actually did my, my PhD at the University of Calgary.
0: I noticed that yes yes i i looked yeah i was looking at your personal website and i was like hey and to be honest i thought that this was maybe one reason why you know we became connected i was like oh maybe maybe somehow like you know this information was circulating somewhere but no i've been at the university of calgary yeah all semester i've really been enjoying the classics and religious studies department here
1: that's hilarious i think right after yeah right after i came back to Toronto, they merged, the Department of Religious Studies merged with the Department of Classics. and Now mm-hmm. it's Claire, <laughs> Classics and Religious That's Studies. Right,
0: Claire, yes. And, and Claire has been so generous. I mean, it's been a difficult time, right, for everyone. So I do still spend a lot of time um, working, you know, at, at home. Uh, but people have been just so kind. Um, and we've had lots of virtual meetings. <laughs> and I'm hopeful that as the vaccine rates go up, we might be able to meet even more in person.
1: Megan, when did you start, There, I ask? Because I actually had the chance to teach an undergrad class at the University of Calgary while stationed physically in Toronto, and this was fall 2020.
0: Oh, great. Well, so I've only been here since March. So it's just a five-month research chair kind of visiting uh, fellowship situation. And so I'll only be here for another month. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, It's always too short, but I'm working on my next project while I'm here on calligraphy and the emotions in um, not just newspapers, but also more broadly. So I'm looking at uh, by working on Medina, I became so I became really fascinated with not just lithography, but the way that it was able to reproduce calligraphic forms. And so here in Calgary, I've managed to find some instruction in the calligraphy, and I'm doing work looking at intellectual histories of calligraphy, um, Beautiful formal histories of calligraphy, you know, Tazkara's of calligraphers, as well as looking at how calligraphers are cited and um, valorized in periodicals in uh, magazines, uh, so newspapers and magazines, so, so periodicals in general. And so that's what my next project will be about, calligraphy and the emotions and how those emotions may have changed from the late 19th century to the later half of the 20th century.
1: So, what I in writing is what you're doing. Great.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What is the role of emotions when we're looking at writing, right? And what I'm finding so fascinating is, you know, first of all, you know, emotions have very different roles depending on how you're approaching writing, right? If you're a calligrapher, you know, you are perhaps working on calming or even neutralizing some of your emotions in the earlier part of your training. But, um, and, and maybe emotions then are primarily useful as motivation. So, your love for calligraphy is what's driving you forward through those difficult first stages. But for the true proficients, for the connoisseurs, emotions take on a different meaning, is my hypothesis. They become something that can be actually very intricately integrated into someone's artistic expression in a very different way. But um, there's this profound shift that I'm seeing happening. I think, in um, how calligraphers are approaching emotions through their training. But then that also differs from the way that historians who aren't calligraphers but are trying to establish this connection or lineage between calligraphy and Islam, they're invoking emotions in a very different way. Um, So I'm having a lot of fun with this early stage of the project so far.
1: That sounds fascinating. You know, once you finish that work, I know a podcast you can appear on. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love it. Yes. (laughs) Um, Great. Well, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the research before we close today?
0: No, no. I'm just very grateful to you for um, inviting me to have this really wonderful conversation.
1: Glad to be of service and also to gain clarity on what I'm doing here. In fact, which apparently is... (laughs) (laughs) Creating podcast culture, yeah. Yes,
0: yes, indeed. You should start taking notes, you know. You need to start <laughs> keeping a journal so that future generations of historians have something to work with.
1: <laughs> I'll I'll share some printouts on my Google calendar at some point. I'm sure that'll suffice. Um, well, thank you very much uh, for appearing on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Megan eaton Prop who is um, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, currently at my alma mater, University of Calgary, doing some exciting research. We've been talking about her fascinating new book, Print in the Urdu Public, Muslims, Newspapers, and Urban Life in Colonial India. Until next time, um, stay safe, uh, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the rasa of uh, books, newspapers, and podcasts.